Welcome to the Green Architects Lounge Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Briley. And I'm your host, Phil Kaplan. Hey, Chris. Hey, Phil. How's it going? Uh, it's going cold today. It's chilly. You know what I saw driving in? No. On the time and temperature building? I do know what you saw. I saw zero. Big old zero. Goose egg. Donut. That's right. Nothing for us. It's cold. It's cold. So it's a perfect day to talk about what we're going to talk about today. That's right. And this is, we should warn everybody, this is a cold climate episode. Like, this is a, an issue that is affecting mostly people in the in the colder climates. And we're going to talk about the multi-zone heat pump issue. Issue. Challenge. Challenge. It's not a problem. We're not going to say that because that'll make everyone panic and not, you know, move away from heat pumps. We're not saying that. We're saying that there's an issue. Everyone needs to be aware of it and they need to start designing their things better. They're systems heat pump systems that's right but so here today to illuminate us on the issue and how to solve it dana fisher welcome dana hey glad to be here it's great to see you guys as always yeah good to see you great to have you really is yeah so we've we've known dana for for years and years it turns out uh chris and dana you guys go we go way, way back. back. Yeah, we were chatting about this early today, going back more than a decade on solar stuff and solar going stuff. back to you... those heady days of solar thermal and chewy wonkers. And... Yeah, that's right. You were at the uh, Chewonky um, uh, Foundation, or what, what do they call it? It's not a camp. It's a, it's... Well, they have a camp too, but I, you know, it's a campus. It's a, it's a, it's a different. They have those huge energy summits, and, that, and there you were up there, you know, presenting this, this, uh, you know, this. Uh, main, uh, you know, company doing solar thermal was really great and inspiring. And I thought, man, that guy's got his act together. <laughs> and look at you now. You've, 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 you've spent tons of time at the at Efficiency Maine. How many years? Yeah, yeah I was at Efficiency Maine for seven years uh, working on, you know, all manner of heating systems and weatherization and working on the loan program, getting that running. So it was a, it was a great time. Yeah, and now you represent Mitsubishi in Maine and New Hampshire. Yeah, so I I cover these two states for Mitsubishi Electric heat pumps and uh, and support the network of installers and distributors in the two states, um, trying to make sure that you know everybody's armed with all the technical information they need and that they're um, out there you know doing best practices and doing well by their customers. So it's it's a great it's a great transition for me. Yeah, so Dana's here because he's been a great resource. He's our go-to guy when things happen or things go wrong with right. our Mitsubishi heat pumps. And right. and just to be clear, um, this is an issue with all heat all pumps, heat pumps right. not just Mitsubishi's, but Dana has a, a real good beat on it, so he's going to be able to talk sort of broadly about some of these issues. Yeah, and, and I think that this is something that, you know, we were chatting that this is something that's really kind of come up just in the last couple of years with, with the you know, arrival of more uh, cold uh, climate versions of multi-zone systems. Um, and it really comes down to sizing and selection of units. Um, and, and it has to do with the limitations of, of how, the, how the heat pump multi-zone systems operate. Um, and so, you know, working around that. So we're going to get a great chance to talk through all those different parts. Right. Great. Right after we talk about this cocktail. But first. Right, but first, the important things. Chris, I want you to put that 
glass that I put down in front of you in your hand. Ooh. Hold it. Yeah. How does that feel? Fantastic. That's right. It's it does. warm. That's it's warm. It's, so I changed I the drink s- up on you last, last minute. And, and I have to say, I think I approve of your decision to change the drink. Yes. So this is a hot buttered rum. Nice. I just want to. I just want to curl up in this cup and take a nice, warm, buttery bath. <laughs> <laughs> That's gross. Don't do that. Uh, it is gross. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry listeners. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. Cheers, buddy. Here we go. Uh, boom. And Dana. And Dana. Cheers to you. Yeah. I'll talk to you about Dana's drink in a second. But first, the hot buttered rum. Yeah. It's it's classic. I mean, I, I guess it's a cocktail. It's a little unconventional. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't think of it that way. Um, when I make it, I usually make it for parties for you know, ho- the holidays and New Year's. I'll batch it, but really, it's pretty simple. It's dark rum, yeah, butter, yeah, brown sugar, a little vanilla, a little cinnamon, mm-hmm. nutmeg, allspice, a little water to water it down. Yeah, it gets pretty powerful. This is and this is a thick. chunk of butter. This is thick. Yes, this is like um, you drink it and just like. It's still in your mouth even after you, oh, you know, it's like it coats, it coats everything. Say yes to butter, Chris. Always say yes to butter. I will. Yeah. I will. No, it's really good. Really yeah, good. it hits the spot now, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dana, who does not drink, uh, is getting a, a mocktail tonight. And it's awesome. It's uh, like a cranberry and, and blueberry. Right. So yeah. it's, a, it's a unsweetened cranberry juice, but sweetened with Maine maple syrup. Uh, it's got Fee Brothers Whiskey Barrel Age Bitters in it, and that's a glycerin-based glycerin based non-alcoholic bitters, which does a great job without the alcohol. So yeah. in mocktails, it's, it's kind of the go-to for me. Uh, and uh, Blueberry Lemon Shrub. Which is fantastic. Which yeah. is sort of a vinegar-based, vinegar and juice and sugar-based yeah, thing. Yeah, no, it's got a great, it's just got a great bite to it that makes it really, really pleasant to sip. Excellent. Well, cheers. Yeah. yeah cheers. Yeah. So... So here we go. Um, and just for a little backup, we're not yeah. really going to be going into detail about heat pumps and how they work. Um, we're going to have a brief intro from Dane who's going to tell us a little bit about it. But if you want to find out more, our episode 31, we talked about how to choose your mechanical systems. Mm-hmm. So go back and listen to that if you want a, a little bit of a, a refresher. Right. Or, or we are going to talk about how they work, but not in the details of how, why, how we're sizing them and why we're choosing them and all that. Jazz. Thanks, Chris. So, yes. Right. Yes. So, uh, right. So maybe we ought to maybe we ought to start there. Yeah. How does a heat pump work, Danny? Give us the. Because yeah, you, you're going to sound a lot smarter than we are. Yeah, because we we <laughs> it's have not our hard own, to do, but yeah, it's not hard to do. We we have our own uh, gimmicks of talking about refrigerators, moving heat, not creating heat, all that jazz. But you're probably you've probably got a better. Well, you know, I think like you and probably some segment of the listeners, I totally blacked out every time uh, the concept of refrigeration came up in any science class, you know, in high school or anywhere. Out. It was just not very interesting. Who could understand how that whole thing worked? And then, you know, when heat pumps really started coming along, we really at the state level had to look at, you know, what's going on here? How are these things operating? Um, I really had to dive back into the textbooks and look at some of this. And then, you know, going around and talking to people about it, you know, I've kind of I've tried this spiel many, many times. And really the, the thing that seems to get people's attention is to really just come right out and say that the, the refrigerant that's used in these systems uh, called 410A, which is, you know, relatively uh, newer uh, refrigerant technology, has a boiling point of negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so with a boiling point that low, when it gets 
uh, squirt it into the outdoor unit um, and into a low pressure state, it's heading for its boiling point at negative 50 degrees, which is substantially colder than it is even tonight. Um, and so all the heat energy that's in the air can get absorbed by that uh, that 410A at, at, at a negative, I don't think it reaches its negative, its lowest boiling point, but it, it's approaching that level. And so it, it warms it to whatever outdoor ambient temperature is. And so on a night like tonight, you know, it's warming it up by going into that radiator and the cold zero degree wind blowing past it with the big fan heats up the refrigerant you know, from what it would be to approximately zero degrees. And then uh, that refrigerant goes into the compressor. And the compressor on the outdoor unit, which runs on an electric motor, compresses that refrigerant, reducing its volume. And when it reduces its volume, it's also increasing the density of the heat energy. So I'll take a yeah, so it releases energy by compressing it, right? Well, it's the, it's the this gets into one of those other things that you tend to black out on during, you know, high school, which is like the gas laws, you know, and yeah. and so when you know, the heat energy remains the same, you know, and anything maintains its heat energy throughout. So when you compress that gas, you also compress the heat energy and that manifests itself as being at a higher temperature so when that refrigerant comes out of the compressor it's not zero degrees it's 140 or 150 degrees fahrenheit which is plenty hot and so then it the compressor pushes it along through copper tubes to the indoor unit where there's another you know fin tube radiator and a fan and it blows indoor air across that hot coil of hot refrigerant transfers that heat into the house um, the refrigerant cools down to you know roughly room temperature and then gets circulated back out to the outdoor unit so and then the cycle continues right so dana i'm sure there are people out there thinking hey but Dana, it's zero degrees outside. How can there possibly be any energy for this thing to grab? How It's not hot. How's it grabbing heat from zero degrees? Yeah, and that's the biggest thing that freaked people out. Right. You know, our clients, when we say, they say, oh, yeah, I heard it doesn't work so well when it gets cold. Oh, uh, yeah, that's 80s. That's the, well, it, right. its efficiency does go down, right? Right, the cold, right. but we still hear it. Like, right. Yeah. They, they think like the, the old 80s one where it's below freezing and they stop working basically. But this, yeah. these are so you know, different. A lot of times people think a heat energy is like waves or, you know, they think about a wood stove or the, right. you know, feeling the heat coming from the sun or something. But you can also think of heat energy as, as, a, as a particle, as a packet of energy. Um, you know, the equivalent of light that we always talk about is a, is a photon, um, you know, coming from the sun. You know, it's light and it's light energy and it can you know generate electricity across the solar panel in in the thermal world the equivalent which nobody ever hears about so much is called a phonon and so that's a packet of heat energy and and that particle of heat energy is in everything everything that has any kind of temperature whatsoever has a density of heat particles in it these phonons so we're constantly generating heat you know, and, and these particles and emitting them as we as we walk around and everything has a certain density and these heat particles move from a higher density, whatever's hotter, to a lower density of heat particles, whatever's colder. And so the absence of heat particles would be absolute zero, like negative 270 something, you know, Calvin. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, like 
outer space cold. And uh, so when it's negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside or zero or 10 degrees above or 20 degrees above, there's still a fair amount of this heat energy drifting around, floating through space. And so when the the refrigerant goes into the outdoor coil at negative 50, it just has an absence of heat particles. And so those heat particles that are loose in the air cling to that coil on the outside, get absorbed and get compressed and transferred into the house. And so it it's... Um, it's just a different way of thinking about heat energy, but you know, you're capturing all of this heat energy that's drifting around outside and moving into your house. And then the efficiency of your envelope or your house is really like how well it retains all those heat particles, how well it traps that heat energy and prevents it from escaping through, you know, from airflow or, you know, low levels of insulation, that sort of thing. Perfect. I think I think we covered that. Lost half of our listeners, and then we're going to bring them back around. You know, to die. Bunch of nerds. What? Only oh half. My God. Only half. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, our listeners probably we kept most of them. Uh, you know, the new listeners probably like, oh my God, I just wanted to hear about hot buttered rum, but. No, no. You're some of us are totally like me. I'm going to use phonon in the sentence tomorrow. I'm I am totally too. psyched to do that. I've never done that before. You know, the, the density of phonons in this cocktail is much higher yeah. than the cocktail we proposed. Well done. Earlier. Well done. All right. So We're, this is a sort of a basic understanding, Dana. Single zone versus multi zone. I think there's people out there oh, like, yeah. oh, I, I've got a heat pump. I understand that. I see that cartridge on my wall. What do? Yeah, we ought to talk about... Do you know, I know what, if I have a single zone or a multi-zone? Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah, so um, we're talking about uh, multi... We're talking about what are generally called mini-split or multi-split systems. Um, so mini-splits, mini-split heat pump, it's called a split unit because there's one unit indoors and one unit outdoors, and it's called mini because it's much smaller than the traditional you know, heating and refrigeration systems that were out there that would have split design. And so a one-to-one -one system is where you have one outdoor unit that has two copper refrigerant lines that go to one indoor unit, and it circulates the refrigerant just between those two units. A multi-split or multi-zone heat pump will have one outdoor unit that can go to multiple indoor units, two, three, five, eight indoor units. Um, you know, it, it's the largest sort of residential version that's available right now. Um, and so people would be like, well, geez, that's awesome. Because like, if I want to have four or five or six indoor units, I only have to have one outdoor unit. And I, and, and that's totally true. The only, the, the, the piece that we're going to get to is really that you should design or select the outdoor unit and the capacity of the outdoor unit based on the load of the building as opposed to the number of heads that are in the house. Right. So it's two sort of separate questions. Right. And that outdoor unit is, people have seen it all over the place. It looks kind of like a big box fan is how we think about yeah. it. Yeah. The things that are the inside, we call them heads sometimes, those units. Or cassettes, wall or cassettes. cassettes. Right. And you know, they're about, I don't know. Four feet wide, about 18 inches tall, 18 inches up. And you see them near the ceiling usually, usually mounted up high. Mm -hmm. But they can be, they come in all kinds of models. They can, you can actually get them uh, to go into the ceiling. We'll talk about that in our solutions-based, you know, ducted systems and that sort of thing. And um, and there's even floor units. I haven't 
I was asked the other day, have you ever spec'd a floor unit? I don't think I have. No, architects don't do that. No, we don't. No, we want them <laughs> the hell out of the way. Out of the way. We don't want But them they are more efficient, I understand. Uh, that's what I hear. Well, For heating. They, they, I mean, they, they can be a good choice, particularly if you have like a, you know, a knee wall or, or you know, a, a hallway that really warrants it. But you can't put furniture in front of them, you know. So it's right. got to be in a place where it's not going to be obstructed by that occupant or any future occupant. So. Right. So I think you, we talked about the single, uh, you know, one-to-one ratio, and we got the multi-zone. So maybe we actually now now we talk about the problem, which is now you have this this big outdoor unit, and then you've got a bunch of little indoor units, and now you have, a, a, and it's in a super tight house. We should say this is this is why we we are using we're seeing this this surgence of. Heat pumps is because we're people like you and I, Phil. We're designing these passive houses, these super tight houses. Yeah. So, so it's really in this kind of. We, we should get right, right to the point on this. The 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 issue that we're really trying to work up to and and discuss is that in certain applications, a multi-zone heat pump is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. It's not. Uh, it's going to end up if you if you put too large of a multi-zone system into a circumstance with too low of a load. We've we've seen cases where people will have poor performance, poor temperature control, and high electric costs higher than they were anticipating, especially in low-performance homes where you know they're building a super tight enclosure and it's very well insulated. They're expecting to have very low energy costs, but because of the heat pumps that are invariably selected and oversized for the system, they're, that's not what they're experiencing. So, so let, me, let me paint a scenario, and then we'll, ta- we'll take it from there, where, where there's, there's a dude, and he wants a nice, big, beautiful house with many rooms, and he's got many plans for these many rooms, and so he wants all these different zones. And he hires a green architect, we'll say, a sustainable type of architect, and he says, now build, make it super, super duper efficient. And so we reduce the energy demand. So now, dude, you could just you could heat this whole thing with just one multi-zone heat heat pump, one forty-two thousand BTU, you know, uh, multi-zone thing. He's like, yeah, but great, but I want every room to have you know perfect zone temperature control. So I've got a cassette in every room. So now we have one big outdoor unit. And we have a bunch of indoor units, and then here's where the problem happens. It's it's fall. It's a little chilly. One of the cassettes on the north side is saying, hey, I want a little bit of heat, just a little bit. And it's asking this big heat pump that's outside to start supplying. Right? So Yeah. Yep. So it's a, that's a, exactly right. You know, especially, uh, you know, a lot of the high-performance homes that you guys are designing are, you know, a much lower load. So it's at, the, at design temperature, which in this neck of the woods is about negative 6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it would be, it's not unheard of to have a high-performance home that would have a peak heating load demand of 20 or 25,000 BTUs. And so you would expect that that would be the amount of heat that you'd need at that point in time. Um, and then likewise, you want to think, okay, well, more than half of the season is spent, um, you know, between 20 and 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's not the same level of load. It's about half of the same, half of the load. So in these high performance homes, your heating load might be 10 or 12,000 BTUs, half of what you would anticipate. So when the homeowner says, well, I want to have five or six or seven 
different cassettes throughout the house in order to control all these different zones and you key in on these larger multi-zones that do produce 42 50,000 BTUs of heat one of the one of the and we kind of skipped over this but one of the consequences of having the multi-zone systems is because of all of the line sets going all over the place with all these different tubes going up through everywhere in order for the system to ensure its longevity, it needs to be able to have great confidence that it's circulating refrigerant and refrigerant oil through every single orifice all the way through and coming back and lubricating all the all the different components in the compressor. And so the, the lowest that the multi-zone systems can scroll down is roughly 35% of their maximum capacity. So if you have a 45,000 BTU system mm-hmm. that's rated to put out 45,000 BTUs of, of heat at you know zero degrees or five degrees Fahrenheit, the minimum that it's going to be able to scroll down to is in the ballpark of 15,000 yeah. BTUs, whether you need it or not. Mm-hmm. So if you have a house that's really super tight, um, you're like, oh, well, the load is 25,000 BTUs. Okay, we got from 50,000 to 15. Okay, well, that's in the right range. Well, when you have half of that load, which is actually the majority of the heating season, it's bouncing underneath the um, minimum output of the outdoor unit, of of the multi-zone outdoor unit. And so it's turning on and turning off, which is really one of the key efficiency problems of days of old with your dad's heat pump that really wasn't designed for this climate and would just turn on and off and use all kinds of electricity. So you really, by oversizing the system, you're reverting back to, you know, some of the failings of the prior generation of heat pumps. So when this happens, Dana, the typical coefficient of performance, the number of units of energy in versus the number of units of energy out, in an ideal situation, COP of about three... Yeah, you can get you can get pretty close to a COP of three, meaning one unit of energy in for three units of energy moved in the highest performance, well matched systems in Maine through our, you know, our fun winters with multi zone systems. I think it's probably maybe two, you could get a seasonal average around you know two point six or two point seven. Uh, uh, for your COP, it's going to be a little bit less efficient just because of the size of the system um, and the the motors that are involved. But if you're dramatically oversized, it might be lower, like two, you know, which is still or less. this is or less. Yeah, this is, I'm talking to um, Rob Aldrich, who does a lot of testing with Stephen Winter out of. The, yeah, you know, no, it's true. And he's seeing you know 1.6 on a regular basis, and some that are even. Below one. I mean, we're talking below. Well, I haven't seen anything that low. But I, I have to say that, like, it really, what everybody is trying to get to is a place where the heat pump is running all the time and idling along, providing just the right amount of heat, but rarely going through any um, shutdown cycle and defrosting, you know, maybe every, you know, going through a, a, a defrost mode, like maybe every three or four hours unless there's you know a rainstorm or something going on the objective is to make these things run smoothly and quietly all the time and so you know there's this 
problem with running heat pumps it's mostly humans you know so they'll change the temperatures and run them up high and run them down low and they're missized or inappropriate and that leads to you know these these issues and complaints around a lack of efficiency or high electric costs and so the the i guess the plead is to you know look at the heating load you know when you're out there designing it for for people is to look at the heating load and consider your options around it so if if you have a client who says i want five or six indoor zones that's great give the people what they want it's just that you may want to work on including multiple outdoor units and have smaller outdoor units that will match the load over the entire season and not just meet what their needs are at the at the peak load does that mean additional cost to the homeowner not necessarily um because uh it it turns out that the i mean there's um there's some matching actually in terms of the outdoor unit cost to the for a larger one you you know you can get uh let's say a three zone or two zone system is not really the outdoor unit is not really much different in cost than two single one-to-one smaller units so you might you might see more in cost if you were like i'm going to put six outdoor units as opposed to one Mm -hmm. um but you're going to get redundancy and lower uh operational costs um and uh greater greater control greater temperature control in the individual zones too yeah and uh, you know actually that's what we've been doing recently since we've heard about some of these issues yeah i mean a multi-zone like if you're if you have a a building or a home that truly has you know a a load calling for you know the equivalent of 700 800 900 a thousand gallons of oil per year or more they're a beautiful piece of machinery it's so when when a multi-zone is appropriately matched to a building it just can provide a very high level of efficiency and comfort throughout an entire a pretty sizable space. Um, but there really are limitations. If you put a, a Mack truck on the on the outside of the building to, you know, we were kind of talking about analogies earlier, but, you know, if, if you just put too much system on the outside, it's just not going to suit you well. Right. 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 We talked about like this, this uh, badass Corvette, the, the... Um, a race, racing vehicle meant to go fast with power, and when you tell it it can only go two miles an hour, it's not very happy with that. You know, it, it, it's it's meant to go, uh, and if, if you don't let it go, it sputters out, conks out, and it's not happy. It's not working. It's not doing what it's meant to do. So it sounds very similar to what you're talking. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's that's where people think about it as an issue or a problem or something like that. It's really, you know, there are inherent limitations on any piece of equipment and, you know, heat pumps are no different. And so when we think about the the buildings and designs of the future, which, you know, I, I mean, like we're on a pathway um, similar to what other northern countries have seen, you know, um, in, in the decade ahead, um, we're likely to see you know, the majority of Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts homes 
uh, install heat pumps. Norway went from um, you know some small percentage of heat pumps to more than 50% of homes with heat pumps in a 12-year period between 2003 and 2015. Um, they installed in, Nor- in Norway um, close to a million heat pumps in that period of time. And they have about four times the population of Maine, which so if you were to scale it to Maine, that's like 250,000 heat pumps here and another 250,000 heat pumps in New Hampshire. Um, so far, Maine is somewhere between 30 and 35,000 homes. So we get like another eight times what we've done so far in the last, you know, six years um, before we're done and maybe even beyond that. It's um, with all of the policy work going on around renewable energy and electrification, um, it's really it's really an exciting time in heat pumps and we can really anticipate a future where this is going to be everywhere and more common. And so, you know, part of our duty as, you know, super energy efficiency geeks is to make sure that people understand these constraints and limitations to maximize their performance and make sure that we're doing our most, that when we get to 10 years from now, we turn around and look back and we're really pleased with the fleet of the high performance systems that have been installed and that they've been installed well. Nice. I think this is a, that was a great way to, end this first uh, segment and we'll, we'll take a quick break uh, and then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about solutions and how and the way to approach uh, uh, designing these multi-systems. Sounds fair. I want solutions, Chris. All right. Stay with us. This episode of Green Architects Lounge is proudly sponsored by Pinnacle Window Solutions, focused on providing high-performance window solutions throughout New England since 2009. With 70 years combined experience, Pinnacle Window Solutions has the expertise and knowledge to guide you through the most challenging window and door projects imaginable. More at PinnacleWindowSolutions.net. Now, back to the Green Architects Lounge. Yeah, we're back. Hey, Phil. Hey, Chris. Hey, Dana. Yo. Yo. So, yeah, and maybe, maybe this we should take this moment to just, uh, well, first, thank Pinnacle Window Solutions for being, we got we got us a nice sponsor now, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. But we're thank also, you, yeah, we should, we should also say we don't just let anybody sponsor us, because, I mean, I mean, you know, everyone, everyone wants to sponsor us, but we're like, hey. You know, we, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, we, we wouldn't let people sponsor if, it, you know, if it's not, if it's not products we, we would, would specify. use, right, specify, use, endorse even, and, 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 you know, Chris or endeavor Brill, to specify. Right. Right. And Chris Brill, who's the you know owner, you know, you and I, no, actually all of us in the room, we know him. Great guy. And fantastic guy. And we've been specifying his windows in our high performance homes for years. Duh. So we're very happy to have Pinnacle as a sponsor. Absolutely. Can't say enough. Good things about them um, and the service they provide. And, and they're local. That's one of the things is you can get a European window uh, stateside via you know, their Logic brand, which is made in Pennsylvania. So kudos there. So. And so there's a little reminder, Chris, we're going to redo our our episode on windows I know, at some point. We keep threatening each other. We're going to redo windows, <laughs> our, our, our windows episode, which you can't find now because it's, you know, stinkeroo, man. Yeah, that so thing, Dana, this was our very first. This was number one. Right. So I think I think it was number one. Yeah. And uh yeah, so we were just getting getting just used getting to this po- podcast stuff. And but the, but more to that, you know, it was dated. And and maybe this is a good opportunity to say, "Hey, you know, this this problem we're talking about, it might be over and solved, but you know, in a year. Or so look at the dateline on this, guys, cuz 
you know, yeah. he and pumps fair- a rapidly changing uh, yeah. technology. Yeah, so. and, and the multi-zones are fairly new. Right. Yeah, they really the hyperheat multi-zones have really only been around for a short period of time. And it's really only been identified in the course of people, you know, studying their electric bills and looking what's going on. And, and most of this is really occurring in cold climates where we do have this substantial portion of our heating season and this sort of like half of load right. um, period. So, you know, this kind of thing doesn't really happen once you get, you know, south of New York. Right. So Where their peak load is not as... You know, they're, they're not yeah. designed to negative six. Yeah, I mean, once, you, once you're once you like, oh, well, half of our heating season is 50 degrees, it's just not really a big deal. Right. So maybe <clears throat> uh, maybe it's a good moment to, before we get into solutions and the approaches that we would take. You know, is Mitsubishi, we're not necessarily picking on Mitsubishi, but you're here, you know, because of, you know, your affiliation with Mitsubishi. So, like, are they out there um, running tests and trying to figure out how to... How to how to grapple with this? How to how to you know instead of putting in a one number COP and then ta da that's that's the efficiency. Well, I, th- I think this is actually one of those things that really uh, differentiates Mitsubishi in the U.S. marketplace is really the the level of of engagement with the marketplace and trying to adopt solutions uh, for for buildings in all of our different climates. Um, this uh, this limitation around multi-zones is really not limited to Mitsubishi. In fact, Mitsubishi products are able to scroll down lower than uh, competitive products. Um, But, you know, they're all going to see this. So whether you're designing with Fujitsu or Daikin or LG, you know, these are the same kind of things that you're going to want to take into consideration Mm -hmm. um, and be mindful that it might not be as easy to find information about uh, the the limitations on some of the other ones. So um, just I want everybody, regardless of what your favorite flavor is, Mm -hmm. uh, to be very cautious about this. So as designers, you know, what's what's the best? What's you know, you've got this nice rule of thumb of, you know, 35 percent. That's, you know, maybe that's. Uh, where we start, if we as designers can start feeling or sensing that we're creating a multi-zone system, you know, where we know it's going to catch demand, you know, below that. Uh, yeah, I, I think down. it really, it, it always, it kind of comes back to your sizing. So, mm-hmm. you know, when people, when installers are out there, they're not all sizing, but, you know, presumably when we're talking about new construction or, you know, sub- significant retrofit. We're talking about doing energy models and manual J. And, and I think one of the real key uh, tactics to avoiding this in any circumstance is to not be overly conservative with your energy model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've seen plenty of people who have a lot of experience in HVAC who are like, well, it sometimes gets down to negative 20, so I'm going to use negative 20 in my energy right, model. Right, right. Worst case scenario. That's wrong. That is wrong. It's just wrong. And so, you know, for most of Maine and New Hampshire, you know, and probably across through Vermont, design heating load is between zero and negative six or negative eight. You know, mm-hmm. you can get into some extremes where it's negative 10 or negative 13, but for the most part, it's in that ballpark. If you dial the model down to negative 20, you're definitely going to be oversizing your system. Um, so that's to be avoided. The other part of it is, <clears throat> you know, you definitely have to check out the client and what they want for distribution and what their what their desires are for how the system will interact but you really should not have the, a single core compressor that exceeds the calculated heating load by more than 20% 
You know, I mean, like if I think if you were further south, you could say maybe don't exceed by 50 percent. But I think that when you're trying to cover all the seasonality in in these far northern states, you really want to be very close to exactly the same amount of heating load or up to 120 percent. One of the and kind of along the same line, one of the things that I've um, bumped into in some of my reading uh, from the Heat Pump Association in Norway that has a lot of experience in cold climates and has been doing this for a long time is that, you know, you can find documentation where they say the ideal efficiency for the front cost of the system and the overall operational uh, performance of the system comes when you size it to around 80% of the heating load of the house, which, which seems you know, seems kind of strange to us because we're like, well, what happens when it's hundred percent? Right, so twenty percent of the time, when I need it most, yeah, and I don't so have it. and so their recommendation is that's where you have a second heat pump, mm-hmm. or you have a you know an alternate form of heat like a pellet stove or a wood stove or electric heat, you know, in in the perimeters of the house. But it kind of gets back to that the what we were including in the prior segment talking about having the system coast all the time and, mm-hmm. and, you know, running all the time. And so if you were to size to 80%, there really is no circumstance where in a, you know, very, very limited heating circumstances where you would be below the low output level of different heat pumps if you were to size that level and then have sort of a booster heat, mm-hmm. a second stage of heat in order to accommodate those extreme events like today right <laughs> yeah that's so, fascinating dana i think that's just a really cool idea cool rule of thumb i mean because yeah. chris i know you guys do very similar things that we do and mm-hmm. you know we'll have backup electric sometimes and we'll have yeah some either pellet stoves or, or like, stoves or like or a, your, stove. your bathroom has a you know tile floor that's you know got the electric radiant or you know, maybe even an entryway that has electric radiant, or you have mm-hmm. a little a radiant panel. Yeah, you know, or that's how sometimes we handle that zone issue. Right. Where it's like you're nervous about, oh, is the bathroom going to be warm enough in this system? You know, that's in this right. house. And it's about distribution. It's about distribution, but but perhaps you know you have that electric resistance heat for just as a booster. It's not your backup. It's actually a secondary part of the actual design maybe it can you know integrated too and have the controls integrated so that you know it's seamless you set the temperature at 70 degrees and the house overall meets those conditions to maintain comfort throughout and so you know you can accomplish it with all heat pumps but you know you need to take into consideration the size of the different systems that are included or you could have your your supplementary backup i mean we haven't really gotten to ducting but sort of to lead us down that road you know mitsubishi has ducted systems that have um you know you can add a module that has a what they call a toaster kit on it it's Mm -hmm. you know it looks a lot like a toaster you could probably put a very big slice of bread in there and Mm -hmm. (laughs) it basically comes on when the heat pump is experiencing a droop of the set point temperature so you set the room temperature in the living room at 70 degrees heat pumps operating um, and for whatever reason it's so freaky cold and windy outside that it isn't able to maintain the set point temperature the electric comes on to to supplement that and it's totally seamless the homeowner doesn't know any different and the period of time that it's on is so limited just Mm -hmm. a few hours per year that they don't really notice the difference but if they were to try and accommodate that much more heat energy at those coldest temperatures it would require a substantially 
larger right. system that would be more expensive up front and would be more expensive to operate throughout the entire season. So a, a ducted system is, an, is another way to sort of circumvent this problem. And that, that is by using the same, instead of having that one cassette on the wall, that one cassette is now in a different configuration. It's in your ceiling, or let's say, and it is ducting that air to like your bedroom wing. It's handling this zoning component. Yeah, I, right. Uh, one, one of the limitations of, of, you know, people will put the smallest heads in a few different bedrooms, and so that drives them towards having a, a larger multi-zone system. Mm -hmm. But um, all the manufacturers have ducted systems that are, you know, slim ducts or full air handlers, and they can be parked and ducted into a few adjacent rooms on the second floor. And so you could say, well, I'm going to put a single-zone system that, you know, is maybe larger, like a 15 or 18,000 BTU, one-to-one -one that's just totally dedicated to the primary living space and the core of the house. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to put a either a multi-zone or a one-to-one -one with a ducted unit up in the up in the attic or in a chase that can duct into a couple of smaller bedrooms and either they'll all be at the same temperature or you can use um, automated damp dampers to control and zone them. But by having just that one smaller size coil, you're able to maintain an even temperature throughout and provide, you know, pretty even cooling. Um, and so we've seen, you know, plenty of examples of that and that can be a great solution to to provide that distribution mm -hmm. um, so that all the rooms get heating or cooling when they need them um, without having to add multiple zones and multiple outdoor units. Right. But again, it's, it's, it's also knowing what you're, what you're doing when you're, when you're doing a ducted system now you have to you're 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 bringing in yeah the, there's a the whole, whole bunch of math and magic right? to, to doing ducted systems and that has to be done properly and of course in maine if you do anything in the attic it sure as heck better be you know rigid um yep. you know and, and insulated and yep, sealed right. and you know because you really <laughs> and, and so you're you're inviting some more cost and some more well because whatever you know when there's more complexity there's more cost mm -hmm. but and my rule of thumb is usually two times as much for a ducted system as opposed to a one-to-one -one. Hmm. that's that's sort of is that what you that's yeah, what i've heard i don't know if i that's that's interesting um yeah i don't it's more i mean i don't i it's definitely more um you know duct work is not cheap it's it's labor intensive especially mm -hmm. when it's done correctly um and so it can't it definitely adds cost maybe double is a is an appropriate mm -hmm. match but i, I would I wouldn't expect it to be more than that. Yeah. Right. And and your whole house might not be it it's probably not a binary decision of either this whole house is ducted or not or or it's a split system right. or a, they are, they are split. I shouldn't confuse that. They don't see but a one, to, a one a one to one right uh, versus a ducted. Right. So so you might have a portion one zone or a portion of your building that's ducted and then another portion. Yeah, and it's you know, it's totally true that you know homeowners continue to, you know, when they're not familiar with heat pumps you know, there are, there are people who will be like, ah, I don't want to see that on my wall. I mean, like, honestly, once heat pumps are on your wall, you know, we've talked to people who thought that they would be a real problem. And like some weeks later, they're like, I love it so much. I can forgive it a hundred sins. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, using a ducted system is one way of making the heating system, you know, invisible. Right. You don't really right. see it. So, Dana, what is the ideal uh, application for a multi-zone in this climate? Is there still one? 
Oh, there definitely is. I mean, I think that it, it really comes it really comes down to that size and component. So if you, you know, a typical main home, I mean, mm -hmm. you guys are really focused on high performance homes, but, you know, a, it is extremely common for a home in Maine to be in need of weatherization, mm -hmm. but currently using eight, nine hundred gallons of oil. There are right. hundreds of thousands of houses in that category across the state of Maine. And so if somebody puts a three or four zone system into one of those houses and parks, yeah. you know, a decent size head in their main living space, you know, a moderate size one either in their basement or up in master bedrooms, and they're leaning on that core system. So the core unit that's maybe like 18 or, you know, 24,000 unit that's in their main living space, and that's typically on and drawing and running that can be incredibly efficient and really run well. It really comes down to when you start creeping down to, you know, lower loads and, and tighter buildings that you need to be more cognizant of it. Right. Um, and sometimes people that are doing new construction, even if they're not like, oh, I'm going to adhere to net zero standards, they're just, they're just sort of like spray foam everything. And yeah. so as soon as you walk down that road or contractors see that somebody's walking down that road, it's a good time to really think about, you know, one-to-ones just to make sure that you're not going to oversize. So we've got an integrated approach and we've got uh, using a, you know, a ducted system as an approach. And is there anything else that we're missing? Like, are there, um, I don't know, is there an ace up someone's sleeve about some other magic bullet to... to Keep well, efficiency under control. you know one one thing we haven't really mentioned in this is is sort of part of part of this task is uh, and and part of the benefit of uh, multiple single zones where it's really warranted in in uh, in high performance homes is really understanding how to sell it and you know it does have advantages you have redundancy so that you're able to you know if something happens with one unit you're not totally without heat um, you do have uh, control throughout but people are you know generally concerned about having multiple units outside and it's been shown that you can set up multiple units outside and have them aesthetically pleasing and so it really architects are known for being creative and finding solutions and so it's really part of this challenge is a challenge to architects and engineers to find innovative ways of positioning and locating these outdoor units so that they enhance the use of the building efficiently and aesthetically mm -hmm. great well, I, um, or just hide them <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's ways of doing that yeah, too yeah that's yeah that's, that's right some crazy hiding places i saw one that was but, like it was on a well or something yeah. it was crazy oh yeah. oh yeah you told me about that uh, they, they built like a swimming pool hiding place vault for their mechanical system we we don't need to go into that because that's that's gonna get uh, yeah. crazy, but but uh, yeah. So I think I think that kind of wraps it up. Unless there's any anything else that you have, Dana, on that. Well, Chris, Phil, I'm just really thankful that you guys had me come in today. I'm really excited about heat pumps every day, and uh, just thrilled to be able to share it in in this uh, venue. So I I really appreciate you having me on. Well, we're we're thankful to have you. Yeah, um, we appreciate you illuminating us on on some of the ins and outs and, and that great detail. I think I learned a lot. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think I, I did, I did too. I think, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. So I think this, this will be a valuable podcast to others. Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that Chris and I always talk about, like, what do we want to find out more about? Right. And that's why we 
do this podcast. Yeah, if, yeah. if we find ourselves doing research on something, then we're like, hmm, you know, this, this, is, this is a podcast topic. So, yeah. uh, so Phil, I... You got a pet product for us today? I have a pet product. I want to hear, yeah. even though I kind of kind of already know it. Yeah, you do. But but um, so this is a. It's called it's called Glavel, not not gravel, but Glavel with an L, as in it sounds glate. It's glate. It sounds it, like a glate uh, glate product. Chris. Oh, gross. Um, so, so basically, what you were saying? Uh, yeah, it's so it's glass. The reason why it's pronounced that way is because yeah. it's, it's glass. It's not if you have crappy. Uh, recycled glass that is just of a quality that no one wants it anymore. Even the recyclers are like, Ugh, that stuff, it's all contaminated. It's brown and blue and green and, and you know, or it's it's been recycled eight times already and or it's got whatever contamination. They there's um right now in Europe is where this this comes from, is you can take that glass and you can uh entrain air into it so it's like lava rock or like pumice. It's it feels like if I put it in your hands, I don't have any. Actually, I have a sample somewhere in here, but it's like a bag of it. You're like, oh, it's it's very light lava rocks or something like that. Yeah, and, it's and so weird stuff. It, it's weird, it's weird. And, and it's it's like holding lightweight pumice in your hands. Yeah. But 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 the idea is, you know, let's get rid of the foam under your building, like you know, EPS or XPS foam under the slab. I mean, that what are what other options do you have when you're bearing on it? I, you know, not many. Not almost none. So this is something that you can actually, you know, it has it like about an R two per inch. So, and you can bear on it like crushed stone. So you can you can prep a slab instead of your crushed stone. You have gravel, then maybe sand or whatever, and your vapor barrier in your slab, and boom. And that's actually what we're doing on the school that we're working on together. That's uh, right, KTA and and Brideburn. Yeah, uh, we're gonna try and. You know, it's a living building challenge building, so we're trying to not have petroleum products, you know, all over the place. So, can we do this without foam? Can we? And we're trying. So, um, there's actually a company. And how much are we going to need of it, Chris? If we're trying to, <laughs> yeah, it's our two. Oh, and... we're going to need yards and cubic, many cubic yards of this stuff. Well, but... just about the depth. I mean, you know, if a, uh, at least a, a foot. foot is going to get us. Yep. Uh, that's our twenty. Yeah, that's yeah. not bad. Uh, more yes. than that. Uh, there's 12 two, inches yes. and a foot. Yes, thanks. And there's two <laughs> per inch. Two, R24. Uh, math is hard after a <laughs> yeah, buttered rum. Uh, uh, so, yeah, you were doing great with math, and I'm doing terribly. Anyway, um, yeah, so so there's a company out of uh, Vermont. Oh, God, I hope I have this right. But it, they're starting to, uh, they want to produce it stateside. And uh, they're ramping up and gearing up, and we're hoping to have their plants online for our project. But uh, if they don't make it, then we'll be you know, boating it over. But uh, you know, if this is successful, I'm going to be using it all the time. So it's it's supposed to be cost effective, and um, yeah, and we can not be dependent on that petroleum foam stuff. To, yes, outstanding, yeah. outstanding. Me likey. Yeah, great. All right. Um, and so uh, that just leaves the song, Phil. Oh, the song. Yeah. What do we have for today? I know, uh, you, I know you're really proud of this one. It's <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite bands of all time, Neutral Milk Hotel. Heard of them, yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, in the airplane over the sea. It's, you guys it's are way old. cooler than me. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Uh, only in a couple things. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, <laughs> based on this, not. based on this podcast, I don't think anyone's gonna say yeah. This Anyone's guy's cool. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bunch of nerds. So yeah, okay. So Neutral Milk Hotel. But we're gonna play their song. Wait for it. Yeah. Two headed boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, is he multi-zone? He's a multi-zone boy. Yeah, he's got oh, that's very good. Yes. Nice, Phil. Well, Phil, once again, a real pleasure doing a podcast with you, Cheers. Dana. Yeah, Dana, thanks for the mocktail. It was really great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So it's great fun. Everyone, stay warm. Yeah, and we'll see you next month for the next podcast on a great topic that we will decide soon. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Wait until 